Log Talk Radio. Fly ball left field, hit on the line, it's deep, and it's gone, a home run! Took it away, McKenna around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park, home run! How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers. Incredible! And welcome to the Bless You Boys podcast for Friday, June the 12th, 2015. I'm your host, Hook Slide, and we've got ourselves a highly educational show ahead of us today as we delve deep into the world of baseball scouting. I think you're really going to enjoy this. If you're a first-time listener, the Bless You Boys podcast is a feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You'll find us online at www.blessyouboys.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at Bless You Boys. And search for Bless You Boys on Facebook, like our page, and you'll start getting our daily content in your news feed. All right, before we dig into the show, let's quickly recap the last week. The Tigers finally broke that eight-game losing skid, taking two of three from the White Sox in the weekend series. They outscored the Sox in that series 16-6. to Then they made it a three-game winning streak by beating John Lester and the Cubs 6 to nothing. a beautiful performance by Anibal Sanchez only to get absolutely mauled in the next game, 12-3. to And that score, unfortunately, reflects a pitching matchup of Jake Arrieta versus Shane Green. Green managed to give up another five earned runs in just three innings pitch. That brings his ERA in the last 10 games to a really ugly 8.60. And the latest reports that we've just heard today suggest that he is, in fact, going back to Toledo for an unspecified period of time right on the heels of finding out that Justin Verlander is coming back and will pitch his first season start on Saturday during the weekend series against the Cleveland Indians. So, to wrap that up, since last Saturday's show, the Tigers are 3-1, getting a couple of days off this past week. The offense looks like it might have perked up just a little bit. They're posting an average 5.5 runs per game since last Saturday. Green is out, Verlander is in, and the Tigers are in third place, sitting four and a half games back as they prepare to take on the Cleveland Indians, then a two-and-two series with the Cincinnati Reds, and they'll wrap up next weekend with the New York Yankees. All right, so let's get to the meat and potatoes of this episode. In other news, the MLB draft took place this past week, and the Tigers picked up right-handed pitcher Bo Burrows. Outfielder Kristen Stewart in the first round, and they gave some of us a flashback to the late 1970s by drafting Cam Gibson. Yes, that is Kurt Gibson's son in the fifth round. Now that it's all said and done and the dust is settling, what does it all mean? And for that, I've invited Brian Sikowski to join me on today's show to talk about prospects, the draft, and how to watch baseball from a scouting perspective. Brian is a national scouting coordinator for Perfect Game USA, and he joins us all the way from San Diego today. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. You got me all pumped up with that Dan Dickerson stuff at the beginning of the show. <laughs> I, I actually hear that a lot from our guests. It's it's kind of a nice little adrenaline rush to get the you know some of the big highlights there, and Dan just does it so well, doesn't he? Oh, he's just incredible. Now, uh, in interest of full disclosure, I'd let the audience know that uh, Brian and I actually sat down together a couple of times last year to take in a few. Uh, a few West Michigan Whitecaps games, and just uh, the experience there, Brian, of sitting with you and hearing some of the comments you had to make, kind of uh, exposing me to the world of watching baseball from the the scouting perspective was really an eye-opener. I wanted to kind of give the audience a bit of an inside look as to how that works, and we could start with maybe just some basic 
scouting terminology as we, you know, as fans that uh, don't know the ins and outs of scouting, we read the reports and we, we see certain words, you know, like uh, this player has a ceiling of whatever or a floor, a lower floor. Uh, they've got, uh, you know, this grade, that grade, 60, 70, 80 grade. I was uh, initially, Brian, surprised um, or confused, I should say, to see a player who was ranked as 80 grade and thought, well, yeah, let me know when he gets to 100. <laughs> so uh, I, there's obviously some things that I don't know. Um why don't we kind of walk through some of what those what those terms mean? What is that grading scale? Um, scouts use the the twenty to eighty grading scale, with twenty being the worst and eighty being the best, and it's based on standard deviation. Um, if you want to go into more heavy statistics, with fifty being average, major league average. You know, fifty is for most teams uh, two sixty five batting average. Uh, fastball right around 90 or 91. That's that's major league average. That's the 50 on our scale. And then each grade up or down is one standard deviation from the mean of 50. So 60 we call plus, 70 we call plus plus, and 80 is absolutely elite. So if you're if you're familiar at all with how standard deviation and statistics work, you know that on each side of the scale, 80 and 20 are exceedingly rare. I mean, they really are. That's just how it's supposed to work is, uh, you know, like each standard deviation gets smaller and smaller in terms of the amount of prospects or amount of those grades that exist. So, you know, what we're looking for is, if to give you guys an example, Miguel Cabrera is an 80 hitter with 80 power. He's, hmm. you know, one of the best, if not the best, right-handed hitters in all of baseball. Uh, not even just right-handed, one of the best hitters, period. <laughs> he has top-of-the-line hitting ability and top-of-the-line power. But at the same time, you know, there's a few 20s. Like Victor Martinez is a 20 runner, which is fine. It doesn't mm. play into his game at all. But, you know, he's still a 20 runner because he's really slow. Um, Justin Verlander used to have an 80 fastball with an 80 curveball and probably an 80 changeup and a 70 slider when he was at his peak. That's how insane he was. <laughs> And even hmm. still, with him taking a step back with age and all that, he's still probably, you know, I would have to look at him again and maybe reevaluate him. But, you know, he's probably still pitching with several pitches above average, which is still very good. But obviously we're not seeing the elite from him that we used to see. Um, you know, just a, a general idea to give you guys an example of, uh, you know, guys you watch every day watching the Tigers. Um, we do have some special on display in Detroit. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like you mentioned, Verlander and Cabrera. I'm, I'm very curious, as you know, as you're kind of describing them in those in those numbers and the in the grades. Um, when you're watching, you know, you made you made mention of the fact that you would have to reevaluate Verlander. And I'm curious now, if you were to sit down and watch Verlander pitch, what would you be paying attention to that maybe the average fan isn't necessarily looking at? Because it seems like you're less results oriented in that respect. You know, did he throw a ball? Did he throw a strike? You're looking more at the process. Sure, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> scouts will tell you, we, we really don't care who wins the game. You know, like I, if I go sit down at a high school game or if, uh, even if I go sit down at a Whitecaps game, I really don't care who ends up winning. And maybe that's bad as a Tigers fan. And, and you know, sure, a part of me wants West Michigan to win every game. They're a Tigers affiliate. And plus, I love going there. But at the same time, I'm, I'm you know, I, I really do not care the ultimate result of the game. Um. But, like, you know, to use the Verlander example, if I were to sit down, special attention to his velocity, because at the end of the day, that's what 
most of the grade is for a fastball, is velocity. But there's other stuff that goes into that. Verlander used to be able to beat you with 101 miles an hour, and it really didn't matter where it went. The command really didn't matter at that point because it was such an explosive pitch. But now that hmm. he's not in that high velocity range anymore, you know, probably sitting like 91 to 94, maybe touching a little higher, something like that, which is like a 55 fastball on our scale. Um, the command would have to be better. The movement would have to be better. The deception would have to be better just in terms of effectiveness. You know, he's never going to have the same effectiveness that he had with his fastball just because it's not an elite pitch anymore. But that doesn't mean that it's going to drop three full grades on the scale. Can he refine his command more? Can he hit his spots better? Can he put a little bit of movement on the pitch? That sort of stuff can all play into the, the ultimate grade of a fastball. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So you're not necessarily looking at uh, his mechanics per se, but you're looking at sort of the process of the pitch itself and uh, those things that you just described. What, what sort of things are you looking for? Um, you know, when it's a batter at the plate, a Miguel Cabrera, or you know, let's make it uh, like a Nick Castellanos at the plate. And then we'll talk a little bit more about him later. Um, but you know, I see terms used like uh, you know, this player has a compact swing or he has a loopy swing. Can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, mechanics and how you grade them? Sure. Um, you know, like, like we do, I mean, mechanics are vitally important. That's how the whole thing works. You know, mechanics are a huge part of what we, what we evaluate both from a pitcher and a hitter from anyone, but like, you know, mm. a guy like Verlander, his mechanics are what they are, <laughs> you know, they're not going to change that very much if at all. So we'll note that if they do change, but we are just looking, you know, we're mostly looking at the ultimate result of his stuff, but like Castellanos, young guy, the mechanics have changed a bit in the past couple of years. They've changed a good amount since he was drafted. But, you know, stuff like his leg kick has, uh, you know, decreased and increased depending on the viewing you might watch, How you know, how high in the air he gets with that front leg. Is he down on time? His hands will waggle a little bit. You know, he'll flatten the bat. He'll, he'll keep it upright. Little stuff that changes that I'm sure Wally Joyner works with him on. Um, and you know, we're looking at all of that. We want to make a mechanical profile of a guy when we're, when we're evaluating him because stuff sometimes, you know, there's a lot of mechanical stuff that just doesn't work. Um, and you know, like the terms that you brought up, like compact swing, that's our way of saying he's short to the ball. Like he gets to the ball pretty quickly with his hands. Um, loopy swing, you know, longer loopy is another word for longer. It's like lazier is a good swing is a good word for loopy that kind of stuff all comes into play. You know, we want, and everybody wants, player development guys, scouts, the general manager of the Tigers, the manager, whoever, our hitters to be short to the ball, keep the bat in the hitting zone for a long time, match the plane with the pitch coming in, and that's how you make square contact in a very simplistic way of breaking it down. That's how you make square contact with a baseball and obviously, this goes without saying, the more square contact, the better hitter you're going to be. Um, Castellanos is a guy that always has shown above average plus even better ability to barrel the baseball. And when he was coming through the system, and even, you know, we saw it last year some, his best power was to right center field. You know, right up the, the triple gap at Comerica Park, for example, is where he had his best power, which is kind of unusual. Most guys have their best power to the pole field. Um, it's easier to clear your hips out of the way and turn and get good wood on a fastball that's inside as opposed to staying on the pitch and driving it to right field for a right-handed hitter like Castellanos is. 
So, you know, all of that comes into play, but as we've seen this year, Nick has struggled a little bit. He has kind of gotten away from that. He's kind of gotten away from driving the ball to the right center field gap and driving the ball in the right field. And, you know, he's not a pull hitter by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing I've been noticing is that he has gotten away from that a little bit. I think it's sapped his power. I think it's sapped his overall ability to hit the ball well. And we can see that in his numbers. I mean, you can see that without even looking at his numbers, just watching him hit now. He's making a lot of weak contact to the left side of the infield. And I think the raw tools are still there for him to be a very good hitter, for him to be a guy who could hit 300 in in his best seasons. We're getting close to the time with him where we might have to adjust our expectations a little bit. Hmm. And you brought up that key word, tools. I wanted to talk a little bit about that as well. I know uh, the term gets kind of thrown around the five-tool player, and I know that that uh, seems to apply to the position players uh, so a couple questions there. When you talk about the five tools, what are you referring to? And uh, does that same grade scale, I guess, of five tools apply to pitchers? Well, the five tools for a hitter are hitting ability, power when you're hitting, running speed, fielding ability, and arm strength in the field. Um, traditional scouts, you know, like back in the day, they would grade your overall future potential by just adding up the grades to those five tools and dividing by five. You know, nowadays it's a bit more new age. There's a ton more that goes into it that we don't even have time to get into, <laughs> honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's kind of the old way of thinking. And, you know, you got to understand for like a guy like Cabrera, that would be unfair because his speed and his fielding ability don't, and his arm strength playing first base don't really, you know, have that much of an impact on his game. So to divide, you know, 80 plus 80 plus 20 plus 40 plus 50 or whatever they might be by five wouldn't really be a good indicator of his overall ability because he's so good with the bat. So, you know, there's weighted, you know, different grades for different players are weighted differently in some certain situations. Um, Mm. But in answer to your second question, you know, there's no real, like, five-tool pitcher. You know, there's no real uh, thing that comes into that, but, you know, the the five basics, I guess, would be your mechanics as a pitcher, how sustainable they are to being a starter, because obviously starters are more valuable than relievers in most cases. Um, you know, then it then it comes down to fastball, slider, changeup, curveball, whatever your pitches may be, followed by command of all four or three or five or however many pitches you throw, command of those offerings. Those, I guess, would be the five tools, so to speak, of a pitcher's makeup. Hmm. So looking at, uh, does it make a pitcher more valuable? It seems like it would. Uh, the number of pitches that he has in his repertoire. It could, um, but at the same time, I would rather have a guy with three plus pitches that he can command than six average pitches that he can't. Um, you hmm. can see that with Andy Ball Sanchez once in a while. Is he'll try throwing six pitches and like just doesn't work for him. You know, the split changeup has less effectiveness than the changeup. So why are you throwing it? You know that sort of thing. Or, you know, Verlander added a slider as he got to Major League Baseball. He was always fastball, curveball, changeup. He added a slider. And because Verlander is Verlander, he was able to make it a really good pitch. He was able to make it a plus or better pitch for him. So in that scenario, absolutely, give me four pitches. But a guy like Rick Porcello, for example, to, to harken back a little bit here, he was always caught in between fastball, or he was always caught in between curveball and slider. I'm sure you remember, and I'm sure many of the fans remember that, you know, he'd throw in that, 
loopier 12-6 curveball, then he tried a slider, and he never really had a strong feel for either one of them. But eventually he got around to scrapping the, the slider and went with the curveball, and it became a better option for him. But in that scenario, more pitches wasn't the better thing. Hmm. So, like you said, it's better to have fewer pitches that are, to use your term, plus or plus plus, than to have more pitches that are just sitting at average. This is fascinating to me. And, and the, as you use the term a plus pitch, to go back to what we said earlier, you would call that a, a sixty grade pitch, right? Yes. Yeah. Plus for plus for okay. us is sixty. Okay. So yeah, we're we're learning things already here. So this is this is fascinating. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I can help. <laughs> we've uh, we've talked about uh, you know what what makes a prospect a good prospect and the way that you evaluate them from both the the pitching side and from the position player side of things. Um, let's talk a little bit about player development, and I know that's probably a whole different science and subject unto itself. Uh, but I'm looking at it more from the perspective of you know as a scout, you sit down, you watch a high school player, you watch a college player, you you go ahead and do the, the grading at that point. How set in stone is that? Um, you know, in terms of you know, is it kind of a, it's inherent, it's there, these numbers are what they are, they're probably not going to change, versus, no, this player can really work on some skills, and, uh, you know, we have to come back and reevaluate him in single A or double A? Well, the answer is both, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. When we evaluate prep players or college players or minor league guys, um, each guy gets two grades for each tool. He gets the, the grade that it is right now as you're watching him, and then he gets the grade that you think it could be in the future when he gets to the majors. So, you know, a guy in single A right now might have a four-present fastball, but you might project it to be a six as he develops the command and the movement comes, and he's probably going to throw a little harder. Or, you know, most hitters in single A are like two or three hitters, 20 or 30 hitters. Um, mm-hmm. just because it's really, really hard to hit a baseball in the major leagues. It's really hard to hit a baseball mm-hmm. in single A, but if you took, uh, I know we're going to talk about him later, but if you took Derek Hill from the Whitecaps and put him in the majors right now, uh, he'd be hard-pressed to make contact. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's a 20 or a 30 hitter right now as his present grade. But then you look and you go, okay, as he develops, as, as his swing mechanics develop, as his tools get stronger, as he gets stronger, what do we think he can hit in the major leagues? And most scouts that I've talked to have him like a 55 hitter long-term, which, you know, if you wanted to put a number on it, it's something like 270, 275 batting average in the major leagues. And that's not what he is right now, but it's what they project. And that's what's hard about scouting. (laughs) That's the hard part right right. there is projecting guys several years into the future. So that I mean that in a sense what you're saying though kind of destroys this notion that I've had though that to say that uh you know if Derek Hill for example has you know major league potential right now then he should be absolutely crushing it in single A period but you're saying that's not necessarily the case he could be a 20 30 hitter right now but that's not going to be the case forever. Right, right. And that's, you know, we there's no real sliding scale for the the grades. It's not like we think, okay, he's a 50 hitter for a ball, but he's a 20 hitter. No, it's like we just grade based on the major leagues. And right now he wouldn't be a good hitter in the major leagues. But we think three or four years in the future that he could be a pretty good one. So, you know, no, I don't think he – I think he's doing fine in a ball. If you want to get specifically about Derek Hill, I think he's doing fine. Um, I think that the – you know, he's not striking out a ton. If you want to look at the numbers, he's taking his walks. He's putting the ball in play, et cetera, et cetera. 
And even though the numbers themselves, he's hitting like 225 or 230, something like that, aren't really, you know, sexy. They aren't something that you're going to go on Twitter and go, oh, man, Derek Hill's blowing up West Michigan. But at the same <laughs> time, that doesn't that doesn't mean he's doing badly. It's it's very right. it's very hard to – I know it's hard for the average fan and it's hard for most people to think that, to think that way, but that's just how it is. <laughs> that's just how it is. He, he's doing just fine. Sure. And I think along those same lines, I would want to follow up by asking, how long does it typically take for a prospect to kind of develop into the full potential of what you projected them to be at? Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, how, how long do you wait before you can just say, okay, they, they don't have it. You know, the, the development time is over. They're not ever going to get any further than where they're at, you know, versus just saying, no, that you got to wait a few more years or whatever. What is that number? There's really not a specific number. You know, it's going to go case by case. It goes player by player. Like Derek Hill was a guy who was drafted out of high school and is 19 years old playing in full season A ball. So, you know, for me to say Derek Hill just doesn't have it, you know, Derek Hill is never going to be anything more than a fourth outfielder or, you know, something like that, it would be several years down the road. You know, unless his mm. hitting mechanics and overall feel for hitting just take a gigantic step backward which is something that you can only see by evaluating him in person, then, you know, it's still several years away. Now, if we want to stick with West Michigan, a guy like Austin Schatz that, you know, the Tigers drafted a couple of years ago and, and relatively high round, the third round, um, he's a guy that I'm thinking <laughs> he just doesn't have it, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is tough to say, but, you know, because he's got some uh, some high-end tools with the speed, but, uh, you know, and and that's the danger of scouting is is you're putting all your you're putting your eggs in a basket of you know what he's going to figure out he's going to get better and then eventually it comes around to say uh, maybe not. So mm. just to give mm. the the West Michigan comparison a little bit there, those are two guys that that uh, you can look on either end of the spectrum with. Sure, sure. So it may take a couple of years to kind of come back and reevaluate. I mean, I'm curious too because I heard you say you know you have to come and see him in person. Was that to say? Uh, that you can't scout somebody, you know, by watching the game on television. Does that have, does that have to be, you know, an in-person thing? And, and is there something about being there in person, watching it from behind the plate, you know, as opposed to the center field, you know, center field view from the camera angle? Yeah, you can, you know, you can pick up on a couple things by watching on TV. Um, you know, you can pick up a couple things watching on film. You know, if that's the scenario. But at the end of the day, scouts got to do it in person. They got to go to the field and they got to sit there and they got to watch him and they got to watch him for more than one game. You know, I wouldn't be, I've been to West Michigan one time this year, saw one game. So I wouldn't be writing any scouting reports on anybody I saw from West Michigan. I saw one game. Uh, For me to write a scouting report on Derek Hill, I would need to see like 20 at bats to feel comfortable, um, for example. And with guys doing like what I do, watching the amateur players, it's even more than that. You know, you keep notes on every guy every time you see a guy. Like, I'll go watch pitcher and I'll take notes on him, but I won't fill I won't fill out a full report yet. Um, I'll wait until I see him again and again and again, and then I'll I'll have a feel for for actually projecting grades and actually projecting tools and thinking about what he can be at his peak and then writing that down. And then even still, it's really not ready to fully submit yet. So that's why that's why professional scouts. Um, are on the road all the time. That's why they're hmm. seeing a guy for 60 or 70 at bat before turning him into the team. Um, 
it's just how it is. You can't, you know, one game doesn't tell you anything. Three games might not even tell you anything, um, wow. especially for hitters. You know, for pitchers, it's a little differently because they might throw 100 pitches in one game and you can get a decent feel for them over the course of one or two games. Um, but, you know, this is what this is what I've been telling you. It's very variable. Good alliteration. Very variable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a wordsmith, don't you know? There it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. This, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, we're talking here with Brian Sakowski here on the Bless You Boys podcast. Brian, the National Scouting Coordinator for Perfect Game USA. Uh, I wanted to kind of change subjects just a little bit as as I was prepping for the show today. The, the thought occurred to me um, a couple of things. Uh, people that have seen the movie Moneyball, uh, you know, that movie – you know, definitely kind of promoted the idea of the advanced metrics, the saber metrics, but it really pitted, you know, sort of two characters against each other. The uh, the new wave of, you know, stat-heavy egghead thinkers, forward thinkers, versus the old dinosaur scouts uh, who, who don't know how to really evaluate a, a player because they're looking at things like, does he look like a ball player? Does he have that look? Does he have the will to win? And I thought in talking to you today, I mean, because you're going to be part of this new wave, you know, of, of younger generation scouts. Um, I know you've got some exposure to the advanced metrics. You're not at all, you know, uh, anti saber metrics. So kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, does does that disparity, does that uh, sort of rivalry really exist between the metrics and the old scouts? And uh, how do you and, and other scouts, you know, in your same age range um Sort of, where do you see advanced metrics fitting in to help you do your job? You know, I really believe in my heart of hearts, you know, at the very bottom of my soul, that you need both. I really believe that you need both to build a, a really good major league team and to build a program, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for my job, just looking at, you know, because I don't really spend a lot of time looking at professional players. Uh, I don't even spend a ton of time watching college players. Most of my focus is on high school guys. And for that, you know, it's tough to use sabermetrics because high school stats are meaningless. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I really don't care even a little bit what a guy's stats are in high school. Now, if a kid with that's being turned in the first round hit 200 in high school, I'm probably going to ask a few questions. But I, I really don't care that much. Um, you know, even college stats, for that matter, don't really matter in the long run. They're a little more important, obviously, depending on the level of competition. They really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Um, We're looking, you know, professional teams trust their scouts as far as drafting guys. And then, and I could be way 100% off base here, but my feel is that um, in terms of like the draft, for example, you lean more towards scouting. You lean more towards traditional scouting and projection. And then when it comes to building a major league roster, you probably lean a little more towards sabermetrics. You lean a little more towards how do these guys' numbers, when the numbers actually matter, project forward and and how do they look on our team and and how do they focus well with what we have and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, you know, from top to bottom, you need both. But there's sort of a sliding scale, um, you know, in terms of, like at this level, it's seventy thirty scouting, but at this level, it's sixty forty sabermetrics, and at this le- you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
Sure, sure. I'm curious to hear, you You know, as you say, the, the stats just don't matter at high school. They begin to matter a little more at college. Why is it that you think the stats don't matter at those lower levels? Is it simply because there's so much more development yet to come or there's it's just too small of a sample size? What's what's the reasoning there? Uh, well, the level of competition is big. You know, the vast majority of high school kids aren't playing against, you know, really good competition. Um when they come play in in our in perfect game events, or you know they play on the national showcase circuit, or they play in the various all American games, you know those kind of things, uh, then you can maybe pay a little more attention to the stats because they're playing better competition. But like a good example is Nick Plummer. Um, he was the Cardinals' first round pick just a couple of days ago. Played at Brother Rice in Birmingham, Michigan. You know, high school kid that was taken in the first round. And, you know, he put up obscene stats all season long, and they don't matter at all because he wasn't playing anybody with, you know, he wasn't really playing anyone good. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. not to say that the Catholic League in Michigan is bad. It's a good league. It's just, you know, he's seeing kids that are throwing in the low to mid-80s, and then he's going to go to the GCL in a couple weeks, presumably, and see guys that can touch 99. (laughs) So it's a completely different (laughs) ballgame. Right. You know, so so high school guys, like I said, once they get into like a showcase circuit or that sort of thing where they're seeing better competition, then then maybe they start to matter a little bit more just in terms of of, uh, how you look at their effectiveness. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. college, it's the same thing, the level of competition. Like a guy who plays in the SEC and sees top five rounders every weekend on the mound. Yeah, you can look at his stats and see, hey, this kid's hitting pretty well against, you know, that first rounder and that second rounder and then that other first rounder from Florida or wherever. But at the same time, those guys aren't major league pitchers. Those guys aren't right. even, you know, able pitchers yet. So it's, it's hard to put a special emphasis on it because they're, they're playing college guys. You know, at the end of the day, they're playing college guys. Now, so if, competition kind of becomes that, that context that you need. Yes. That's the big one. Competition becomes the context. Actually, that's a okay. yeah. You might have to name the podcast that competition becomes <laughs> the context. I like that. <laughs> hey, I, I, I smith words with the best of them myself, you know. So, <laughs> Very nice. Very I, nice. Wanted, uh, I wanted to uh, get a little bit into, uh, obviously, with the draft happening this past week. Let's talk a little bit about those first two uh, picks that the Tigers made in the first round. Uh, Bo Burrows, right-handed pitcher. Uh, maybe your typical power arm, and uh, Kristen Stewart, who looks like a big dude, who's going to be a power hitting outfielder. What uh, what's your what's your initial take on these guys? Um, I haven't seen Stewart a lot. You know, I think I saw him for like three or four at bats, but I, I did see Bo Burrows quite a bit in the past year. And you know, a lot of guys kind of came down on the pick a little bit, but I really liked it <laughs> personally. I liked that mm-hmm. pick a lot. Um, I mean, he throws the hell out of the ball. Like, I've seen him hit 98. Uh, you know, he'll get up there. He'll sit in the mid in the mid 90s. And, like, sitting in the mid 90s is not, oh, you know, he threw a lot of 90s and 91s and hit 94 once and 95 once. Sitting there means, like, for his entire game, he was 94 to 96. And that is very, very, very impressive from a high school kid. Like, that is, you know, very rare to sit in the mid 90s. That's very impressive. Um, you know, he's a bit smaller by traditional Tigers right-handed flamethrower standards, you know, being 6'1 or 6'2. But mm-hmm. the velocity is there. The velocity is probably going to even get better. 
the athleticism and the deliveries there. You know, he'll he'll show you a plus curveball that could become, you know, um, consistently plus in time, and he's got feel for his changeup. So, you know, you're looking at, in, in a best-case scenario, like a number two, number three starter there. Um, hmm. And getting into the ceiling versus floor thing, you know, his ceiling is probably a number two starter, and his floor is probably a back-end reliever. But, you know, I think he's got a better shot of – reaching its ceiling than most high school kids do. Hmm. And, and uh, of course, the other big news in that draft was the fifth-round pick when the Tigers picked up Cam Gibson, Kurt Gibson's son. And, you know, from the from the storybook, that's, uh, that's a pick that you really want to work out. You want to see, you know, Kurt Gibson's son come to play for the Detroit Tigers. But you know how that goes. It's not always realistic. The storybook, you know, story doesn't always come to pass. I noticed when I was looking some information up on Cam Gibson that he was actually – drafted in round 38 by the Diamondbacks back in 2012 and obviously opted to not sign with them. Uh, but a fifth-round pick is, you know, seems like nothing to sneeze at to me. What's uh, what's your take on, on Cam Gibson? You know, he's uh, he's toolsy. <laughs> we use the word toolsy. He's really, really what's fast. What does that mean? You know, okay. <laughs> toolsy is like he's uh, – he'll, he'll flash, uh, you know, he'll flash feel for – uh, most or all of the tools, and he's got some rawness to his game, but the tools are there for you to dream on, um, that sort of thing, <laughs> I, I guess. There's not a lot of polish to his game yet, but it could come. Okay. Um, okay. I guess that's a roundabout way of explaining toolsy. <laughs> but mm-hmm. he's a he's a top-of-the-line runner. You know, he'll, he'll get down the line real quick. He's got consistently 70 speed, but he'll show you some 80 times down the line. Um. He's kind of got an unorthodox swing, an unorthodox setup. It's kind of slappy, uh, I guess, is the word I would use. Like, he, he wants to put the ball in play and run. Um, mm. But he's a strong kid. You know, he's not small. He's, he's a strong kid that's got some power in that swing from the left side, but he opts to not show it as much because he's just trying to make contact and be a leadoff hitter and get on base. Now, I don't know hmm. if the Tigers player development is planning on changing that at all or if they're just going to keep him how he is and turn him into a leadoff hitter. Um, but there is some power there. Uh, it's mostly gap power, but, you know, he'll, he'll, put, a, he'll put a few over the fence. Um, I know the Tigers are hoping to develop him as a center fielder because of that speed, but I really don't think he's a very good defensive outfielder. Uh, you know, I saw him hmm. quite a few times playing at Michigan State. And, you know, the routes are raw, the the overall feel for the position is raw, his arm is pretty weak. So, like, I, you know, I project him as a left fielder going forward where his speed will allow him to make up for, for some of those shortcomings as opposed to a center fielder where even if you're fast, you know, you still have to be a pretty solid outfielder, as we see with Rajai Davis quite a bit. Um, let, me, let me just so back up just a know, second. Sure. Uh, because I heard you use the word in you know, the routes that he takes to the ball. That's another another term that I that I hear continually when I'm reading scouting reports or talking to you know friends like you. To talk a little bit about what that means, the, the route to the ball, and what um, you know how you grade that. Well, we want to see, the first thing we look at is how he reads the ball off the bat. Um, hmm. You know, some of the guys like when Austin Jackson was younger, he was really really good at it. Was he was able to pretty much know, you know kind of weirdly where the ball was going to go as soon as it was hit. And at that point, that's like what we're talking about as far as like feel for a position. 
and in the mm-hmm. outfield, do, do you do you have feel for outfield to where, um, you know, you know, and it's kind of uncanny at times where the ball is going to go right when it's hit. You know, a lot of guys they got to, you know, me for example or you, we'd have to sit in the outfield, <laughs> stop in our tracks, see the ball go up in the air, decide where it's going, how far it's going to go, and where it's going to land, and then we'll go over there and get it. Well, but, I'd have you know, to put my beer down first. Well, yeah, I'd have to get on a bike, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I'll be in an outfield is if it's on a lawnmower or something. But uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, sorry, carry on, uh, carry on. <laughs> but uh, you know, if we're talking about Cam Gibson and in relevance to that, it's he's kind of a you know he takes he takes circuitous routes at times. You know, we mm-hmm. see a ball go in the air, and from our vantage point as a fan watching on TV, it's like okay, clearly that's going into the left center field gap. But it's really hard to read that if you're playing center field at times. You know, the a guy can take a really massive swing and just tip the ball, but based on the swing, it looks like he killed it, and all of a sudden it's dropping 10 feet behind second base and no one's there. So we want to see him get better with those routes, and that could certainly come with, with professional instruction, but a lot of that has to do with just natural ability, um, just natural feel for the position like I talked about. And you know, his speed allows him to make up for some of that, and, and that's the great thing about speed. <laughs> you know, it just allows you to do that. But I don't think in time it's going to make up for it enough for him to be a capable center fielder. That's just my projection on him. You know, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> As a Tigers fan, mm-hmm. I hope in five years he proves me wrong and he's a gold glove center fielder. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he just he just doesn't seem to see the ball well off the bat. He doesn't seem to take direct routes to the ball regardless of where it's hit. It's not like he has a specific weakness to left or right side. There's ever a, there's ever going to be a good center fielder in there. Hey, we're talking with Brian Sokowski from Perfect Game USA here on the Blushy Boys podcast. Uh, Brian, let's talk a little bit about, you know, as we climb the ladder here out of, uh, you know, the, the, the draft picks, we, we've already talked a little bit about West Michigan Whitecaps. Let's just shoot on up to Toledo for half a second here and tell me, is there anybody uh, in the Mudhens uh, roster right now that you particularly like? I know we've heard a little bit about Buck Farmer, um, you know, what he's doing down there. We, he even came up and pitched a little bit in Detroit uh, this year. Also hearing a lot about Stephen Moya, and, uh, you know, it seems like there's kind of a fan consensus that he's going to be, you know, someday the savior of Detroit from the way some people talk. Uh, who, do you, who do you like in Toledo right now? You know, there's not really any standout guys in Toledo. Um, there's not really any future above-average major leaguers in Toledo, in my mind. Um, you know, I like Stephen Moya because he hits the crap out of the ball, and it goes a long way when he hits it, and he looks like Adonis. But <laughs> it, it's I don't think he's ever going to hit enough at the major league level to to warrant playing every day. I think, you know, there's a ton of swing and miss in his game. Being a giant human being, his swing is naturally longer than everybody else's, so that, you know, gives him fits. He doesn't do a good job of recognizing spin. So, you know, I think the best-case scenario with Moya is you're looking at, like, a left-handed Marcus Thames um, to to go back, a little throwback there, a left-handed Marcus Thames who can hit 550-feet home runs that you replay for years, but at the same time he's probably going to hit 230. Um, (laughs) like, you know, like Eric Munson had the longest home run in Comerica Park history. Like he had stupid power. He wasn't very good. (laughs) You know? Um, and I know Moya has taken strides forward. Um, 
you know, he's probably taken as big, if not bigger, strides forward than anybody in the system just because of how far he had to go. But, mm. he, you know, he doesn't walk ever. He strikes out a ton. You know, there's no chance of him playing against left-handed pitching. So, you know, maybe in your best-case scenario, he's a platoon bat who hits against right-handers with power. And I still think that you're going to – that's a good player. I still think that's a valuable commodity to a major league team, you know, a left-handed bat who can drive the ball out of the ballpark, who plays – who could play the majority of the time because the majority of the starters you're going to see are right-handers. Um, but for the people projecting him to be the savior who hits 40 home runs, and, yeah, we might need to temper those a little bit. And as we move up a little further then to the Detroit Tigers organization, we've already touched on uh, what we're seeing from Nick Castellanos and where you think he projects to be in a couple of years. Uh, There's a couple other newbies in the system. Uh, Bruce Rondone, I mean, who the fans have seen a little bit of over the last couple of years, but he's been injury riddled there for a while. But he's looking like he's poised to perhaps join the club yet still this year. And then the other one is uh, James McCann, who seems to be filling in quite admirably. Uh, for an ailing Alex Avila. Why don't you talk a little bit about those two guys and, and where they project to be? Sure. Um, I think James McCann and Alex Avila combined to make an outstanding catcher. I, you know, <laughs> if you combine them as far as Avila hitting against righties and McCann hitting against lefties, I think that that is going to be a very, very, very valuable position. If you want to, if you want to go back to sabermetrics, I think that's a, a several win player, those two combined mm. right there. Uh, I don't think Avila is an everyday catcher because he can't hit lefties and he's and he has some injury issues. And I don't think McCann is an everyday catcher because I don't think he's going to provide significant value with the bat over the long term of a season hitting against righties the mo- majority of the time. They're both very good behind the plate. And McCann is really good behind the plate. I'm sure you guys have noticed that. McCann is really good back there. He's got a very strong yeah. arm. You know, he blocks well. He handles the pitchers well, et cetera, et cetera. He's an athlete. All that stuff goes into it, and McCann is good. You know, he's got some power in his bat. It's mostly gap power, but I think if he hit 500 at-bats, he could hit 10 to 12 bombs, something like that. Um, but, you know, back to what I said, I think him and Avila combined, and I've been saying that for a couple of years now, I think he and Avila combined are a really valuable player, a really valuable position. Uh, I understand that it's the popular thing of, Tigers fans, especially on Twitter, to uh, write off Alex Avila for for whatever reason. He doesn't hit 280. Well, he gets on base, uh, you know. So right, right. I, I think the two of those combined are really good players, uh, are, are a really good position. Um, right. And they provide value in different ways, but but at the same time, when you put it all together, it's a it's a really good player. Mm. Um, to get into Rondon, oh sure. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to ask. I mean, let's 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 assume for a second that uh, Alex Avila, he's in his contract year. Let's assume he's not coming back. Can McCann stand on his own? Yes, I think he can. I think he can be an average to maybe a tick above average everyday player. But I think that you maximize the value of the catcher position with Avila there as well. Um, okay. If the Tigers were to decide that they didn't want to pay Avila five or six million bucks or whatever the number would be to cut a, cut a little bit of salary and just give the reins to McCann. I don't think you lose anything defensively. Um, you might actually gain a little bit defensively, but I think you will lose overall value as opposed to the two of them combined. Good, good. 
All right, sorry, I interrupted you. You were about to talk about Bruce Rondon. Oh, sure. You know, Rondon, a couple years ago when he was in Toledo and I went and saw him, I was blown away quite literally. (laughs) He hit like 102, 103 for like eight consecutive pitches, and I was just like, okay, (laughs) we might might have something here. (laughs) But uh, his biggest biggest issue, and, you know, from what I understand it still is, is throwing strikes you know, throwing quality strikes. Mm. Um, you know, you'll hear scouts and whoever talk about command, and fans need to understand that command is different than control. Um, control is the ability to just throw the ball in the strike zone, and command is the ability to throw where you want in the strike zone. You know, mm. yeah, he throws the ball right down the middle of the plate at the belt. Control. Command is being able to spot it on the outside corner at the knees whenever you want it. Rondon not only doesn't have command, but he has struggled with control. You know, he'll get wild, he'll walk a bunch of guys, he'll hit people, and you can't have that in the bullpen, as we know. So the first step to the Tigers was to try and get him to just be able to throw strikes, and then they were hoping the command would come. And I still don't think that he's going to have anything more than below-average command long-term, but when you're throwing in the high 90s into the hundreds with good life on the fastball, command really isn't that important if you can put it over the plate. So we're waiting for him to get his velocity back. And, you know, from what I've heard, he's like 95 to 98 in Toledo, which obviously isn't slow, but it's not fully back from what we saw even when he was in Detroit a couple years ago. Hmm. Um, you know, he'll throw a slider and he'll throw a changeup, and both of them will flash above average. Both of them will show the ability to be swing and miss pitches, but he doesn't have any command of either of them. So it's tough. You know, if you just bounce your sliders, it doesn't matter how sharp it is. Guys aren't going to swing mm. at it in major yeah. leagues. Mm. So, that you know, his ceiling is like a closer. His ceiling is a shutdown closer who can just blow people away, a la Craig, Craig Kimbrell. Um, mm. But, you know, I think realistically that's not going to happen. I think realistically you're looking at like a right-handed seventh or eighth inning arm, you know, who can come in and get strikeouts. And that's what this team sorely needs in the bullpen, by the way as a guy who can just come in and get a strikeout. But, um, and we're hoping that Rondon can be that guy. I was hoping that Nesbitt would be that guy at the beginning of the year, honestly, but he's not, not yet anyway. And, uh, you know, if Rondon can come in and pitch in the seventh inning, you know, I don't think you're going to see Max Bruce Rondon until 2016. I just think that, you know, you need this full season to get back into pitching after having Tommy John and especially with missing time with the bicep strain. I don't think we're going to see Max Bruce Rondon this year. I think we'll have to wait till next year. But that doesn't mean he can't be valuable to the club this year. You know, if he comes in as a middle reliever who can strike a guy out or, you know, throw an inning or two clean, that's valuable, obviously. But if you want to see the flame throwing maybe future closure, you're going to have to wait until next year. Sure, sure. And obviously for this year, as you mentioned, you know, even to have a good seventh, eighth inning guy is, is a huge pickup because obviously the Tigers don't don't need him to be Max Rondon right now. Uh, they've, they've got Soria as a closer. So that's, you know, it's, it's good to hear that you, you think he'll project out to be able to maybe fill that seventh, eighth inning role right now. Uh, we're talking with Brian Sikowski from Perfect Game USA here on the Bless You Boys podcast. We're just about ready to wrap it up here. Uh, but, Brian, I have some, some great news for you. We have resurrected uh, a previous feature uh, on this podcast that hasn't been around, at, at least not since I've been doing the podcast or even co-hosting it with Al Beaton last year, and that is the lightning round. I have three lightning round questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Rank the following in order from least 
to most infuriating. The ESPN Perma Strike Zone graphic, Little Caesars TV commercials, and the 2015 Detroit Tigers. Least would be the Little Caesars commercials because I can just change the channel. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, second least would be the, the infographic because, uh, again, I can just change the channel <laughs> or listen on the radio. Okay. And <laughs> most infuriating would be the Tigers because even if I change the channel, I'm still going to listen to them. So, <laughs> okay. And then I got to deal with it the next day on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. You can't get away from the Tigers even when you turn, change the channel or turn the radio off. All right, question number two. You are stranded in the wilderness. You are naked and afraid. You get to choose one current Tigers player with whom to share the ordeal and help you survive. Who do you choose and why? Uh, Stephen Moya, because he's massive and he can like get food down from trees easier than I can. He's, but he's not in the he's not in the organization or on the on the twenty five man roster. Which which tiger oh, would you sorry. pick? I thought you said in the system. Uh, no, my mistake. Uh, <sighs> Nesbit, because if, if we if he dies, he's got a lot to sustain me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the lightning round may have been a mistake. Can we <laughs> Oh, it's it's all live. And finally, question number three in the lightning round. How long before Brad Osmus starts smoking? Uh, infinite. He's too much of a pretty boy to smoke. <laughs> so we'll set the over-under at infinity, and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. So. All right, he would we, never put a cigarette in his mouth. Come on. No, you're probably right. You're probably right. All right, Brian, we are just about out of time here. We need to wrap this up. I wanted to thank you for joining us. Tell our listeners where they can find you online. Can be found on Twitter at B underscore Sikowski underscore PG. And uh, if listeners have any questions about prospects, et cetera, et cetera, they can feel free to email me at brian at perfectgame.org. Nice and easy email address. And thank you for having me on, man. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've learned a lot here. I've learned a lot, and I hope our listeners have too. It's it's been a real good time, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in West Michigan this year. I will be there soon. Thank you. (laughs) Good. Thanks, Brian. Take care. Have a good one. All right, and that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Bless You Boys podcast. I want to thank our special guest again, Brian Sikowski, for joining us today, offering his insights. You can find Brian on Twitter, as he said, at B underscore Sikowski, S-A-K-O-W-S-K-I underscore P-G. You can follow me on Twitter at HookSlideBYB or drop me a line at HookSlideBYB at gmail.com. Send me any questions, comments, suggestions, indecipherable emojis, whatever floats your boat. And uh, hey, here's to a continuation of last week's progress. Go get them, Tigers. And we'll see you next week on the Bless You Boys podcast. There's never been a corner like Michigan and Trumbull. Ha ha ha, that'll get him out of the old ballpark.